Thank you. You're listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. You just heard right there, Fortune and Maltese and the Fabulous Pal Bearers with Leave No Stone Unturned from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Hello, Freddie Fortune. Fortune and Maltese and the Fabulous Paul Bearers with Leave No Stone Unturned on Get Hip Records. Coming up today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Wise Blood. And to prepare you for Wise Blood, I thought I would play something from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Wise Blood is not from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. She's actually from Doylestown, Pennsylvania. But I was thinking about Vancouver and Vancouver's rich musical history. And one band that caught my ear was Spring. There is a Spring band nowadays. But way back in the 60s, there was a band called Spring. 
produced by Terry Jacks. And we're going to hear a country boy named Willie by Spring. And then we are going to hear some shadowy men on a shadowy planet, inspirational to Wise Blood, and then kind of a monotonous type of tune, i.e., I'm going to force you and subject you to this. We're going to hear a couple takes of Seven and Seven Is by Love. Well, maybe you love it, but I'll play the the song three times in a row. We're going to hear take number 79 and take number 80 of Seven and Seven Is by Love. And then we're going to hear the completed song by Love, Seven and Seven Is. And then we're going to hear an interview with... Wise Blood on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Country boy named Willie Spring. Willie was a boy from the country. They sent him off to school for 16 years.
that track up until the point where we have to tack it on yeah well, we can add the ending on that's no problem
Who are you? I'm Wise Blood. Wise Blood, welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Neptune Records. It's beautiful here. Thank you for having me. Right off the bat, Wise Blood, I have a gift for you right here. A Moby Grape poster and a love poster. Wow. Two in one. Great bands. Really great stuff. Thank you. You love the grape, don't you? I do. I do. I really love that OAR, that um, Alexander Skip Spence record. So he that was after he escaped Moby Grape, right? Exactly. And we have another gift for you, Wise Blood, right here. An Alexander oh. Skip Spence promo poster for the reissue of Or. Wow. I am thrilled. This is one of the best. What can you say about Skip Spence? Well, I had this record in my car for four years um, on CD. And I had some friends that told me that I had to stop playing it because I, I literally wore it out that bad. It was maybe my top one of my top records. Um, I just think it's so mysterious and kind of internal and weird and um, very lush and beautiful. It's like an American Sid Barrett. And there we have for you the Sunday's reissue of Skip Spence or as well as a Moby Grape love poster. I love love too. So thank you. Only the best for wise blood. Wise blood, Mr. Ort. Choir teacher. What's up? You know about my choir teacher. That's that's insane. <laughs> people didn't like your voice in high school? You know what? It wasn't that people didn't like it. I wasn't chosen for a, a lot of solos. I didn't have... There wasn't like he saw this thing in me and was trying to draw it out. He saw me as this kind of rogue weirdo, and he had a lot of respect for me, you know? And he kind of let me do my own thing. But it wasn't like he was grooming me. It wasn't like he selected me and was like, I think you're going to go somewhere, you know? And your dad dated Joni Mitchell? I think he went on some dates with, with Joni, yeah. Um, what was that like? I think for him, interestingly enough, he was so, like, enraptured. Hot? I mean, he was really good looking, my dad, no doubt. But he was so into New Wave at the time. I don't think he... What did he look like? What did he look like? Just so... Um, how do I explain what my... Why dad was Joni Mitchell attracted to your dad? He, and Angelica Houston. Well, he was very charismatic and, and handsome, uh, kind of tall, lanky, like um, strong features, maybe like... Um, I don't really know any actors that you could... Maybe like a, a blonde Tom Hanks? I don't know. It's hard for me to say, but I will say that he was a rock star. He had a band in L.A., and he was really in the new wave thing. And I think when he was hanging with Joni, I don't know if he was really enchanted by her legendary status at that moment. I think he was more like, whoa, talking heads, that's where it's at. And Joni's just kind of like, you know, that's an older folky thing. So I don't think he was particularly starstruck, which is mind-blowing. But um, I think they're just, you know, buddies. It wasn't meant to be a full-blown relationship. Your grandma also did whistling vaudeville style? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> she was like a, a professional kind of bird collar and she um she would get lashings. She'd get whipped if she didn't win competitions. So it was a different kind of showbiz, you know? And people can see her in Charlie Chan movies? She I think is an extra in a silent film. Um she was part Asian and so I think she's playing like a Native American child in a silent film. I've never seen it. I just heard about it. Are you into bird whistling at all? No, I'm not good at that. 
I, I can't do any novelty whistles, but um, but she was weird. She had weird talents. But that's to be on vaudeville. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think um, when you well, she was born in Seattle and then moved to L.A. as a young girl. And I think growing up in L.A. in the twenties, you know, entertainment was like a big. That was how you know people farmed out their children. So, I think her parents were both like, yeah, yeah, go get it. What exactly is going on in this photo right here? Oh, wow. <laughs> this is my first love, my true love, um, Jim Strong, who was an original member of Wise Blood uh, when I first started. And uh, this was actually at a different show, though. I, I was the singer of a band called Satanized, and it was kind of like a weird, uh, mathy metal band. And I was the singer, and I would do pranks where I'd like put some bananas in a garbage bag with fake blood under my shirt and like rip it open. And I think one show, just to kind of get Jim back for. Uh, all his wayward ways, I just kind of, you know, started beating him up with the fake blood, and and then somebody took that picture. It's just so good looking. It's really beautiful. But. Is that wise blood right there? No, that is my friend Cecilia Corrigan. She's a poet. That's me. See me, like, facing Jim, like, kind of full-blown attack zone? That's my head, the singer of Satanized, and that's Jim. He knew he was going to get attacked. It was kind of planned, but I think there was, there was maybe more implied... Old Dark Juice? He is Old Dark Juice. Back when it was Wise Blood and the Dark Juices, um, Jim was the Dark Juice, yeah. What was a Wise Blood gig now versus a Wise Blood gig in the past? Well, at the past, in the house, um, it would be me, you know, kind of playing acoustically with my nylon string guitar, and then I'd have Jim and my friend Jordan uh, playing saws, you know, like bowed, you know, saw, which is just like a tool that you can bow and make strange sounds, and like little tape recorders and little bells and whistles. It was very scratchy, sniffy kind of sound collage with this very like earthy, folky stuff on top of it. And what about nowadays? And now it's, I got this band, I got a drummer, I got a bassist, and I'm singing with my keys and my guitar. It's really way more put together and ultimately more, it's kind of more architectural. It's structured in such a way to be enjoyed by more people. Weisbuck, you mentioned the thrift shops. Yes, I do like some thrifting. Now, speaking of thrift shops, what are you wearing today? Unfortunately, this is not thrifted. This is a, a lend. It's it's a, a white suit, um, kind of 70s style, made by uh, Chloe. It's got the, the little nudie suit configuration going on in the back and the front. Um, and it is on lend from a much more powerful fashionista than I. And she's very kind. She let me borrow it. On lend? Yes. So she wants it back. Oh yeah, I'm I'm getting um getting another one, you know, made. I couldn't afford a Chloe suit personally, so I'm getting getting a suit made with a little bit of wise blood accoutrement, kind of my own nudie suit. Quote, rolling up to your town looking for the mods. I'm always looking for the mods. Yeah, what's going on there? I I love mods. I think I just think they're so fascinating. I'm a big Ian Savonius fan who's kept it pretty mod this whole time. I love the seeds. I just love that time in history when the 60s was first starting to happen and people were kind of like, you know, taking the square and making it weirder, but they're still kind of like coming from a more angular modern perspective. And uh I I like to see who stays mod cuz it takes a lot of effort. I I don't have that kind of effort. You know, I, I do the grunge thing. I, I would never wear boots and, like, walk six blocks with my, with my like, quaffed button-up shirt in the heat. But when I see people do that, I'm like, wow, power to you. That's cool. And you also played the Mod Club in Toronto. I guess I did. 
And Weisbuck, I have another gift for you. Two records right here. The original Wizard of Oz soundtrack from 69 and a Jaws soundtrack. Incredible. From 73, the original. Wow. This is this is groundbreaking. I'm a big Jaws fan. Yeah, how are these important to you? The Oz and the Jaws. The Oz and the Jaws. Well, I think for me, definitely with horror films, you know, those are some of the only places in, in music or in the mainstream where like interestingly spooky experimental music kind of leaks into people's ears. So when I first started making music and I was a little on the weirder side, my family and people would be like, oh, it sounds like a horror film. So I kind of took that as a compliment and got into a lot of horror film soundtracks. The Haunted Cream Egg. The Haunted Cream Egg, yes. That was a big house in uh, West Philly, which is a whole area full of crazy old Victorian houses that they used to rent out to punks. And Haunted Cream Egg was kind of our house show spot. And we threw a lot of weird gigs in the attic and weird spots. The Big Pink House. The Pifus Warehouse. Well, wow. The Big Pink was the first place I lived after I left home. I moved out of my house when I was 17. Um and graduated high school early and and moved to the Big Pink where they had a lot of punk shows and it's like a big terrible punk house. I don't know if it's still there, but it was it was pretty gruesome, but as a young 17-year-old it was like mind-blowingly uh, liberating. And Weisbud, I was also wondering about this band right here. Very important to you. Wolf Eyes. Wolf Eyes. Yes. What can you say about the eyes of the wolf? The eyes of the wolf. Well, my name W I no but first off, I guess um, when they put a record out on Sub Pop, that was a really big deal for me because I had been listening to some weird music and that was maybe the first time that I saw kids in the hallway at my high school who were like, whoa, that, I heard that record and it was insane. And I was like, finally, like this stuff is reaching the people, you know. And I saw Wolf Eyes when I was a teenager and immediately, you know, became hypnotized by harsh noise and experimental music and it kind of ate up a good, you know, six years of my life just pursuing that and being obsessed. And really seeing it, it was so innovative at the time. It was the obvious kind of progression of rock and roll. Like if you're going to do something completely fresh and new, it had to be kind of dismantling and deconstructing sound. And that's what they were doing. They're kind of dismantling and deconstructing rock and roll. And Andrew W.K. did some stuff with them. Yeah, he. Um, I had a Beast People DVD, which was another configuration of that whole, you know, Michigan crew. And Andrew WK is in it, you know, pre-steroids, pre-Andrew WK that we know. And he's like really scrawny and like playing the piano. And yeah, I remember being really thrilled with that too. Around the time I got into Wolf Eyes, I kind of became so enraptured with noise that I started doing more kind of power electronic vibe shows and really distorted and loud and kind of like screaming and feedback and then that eventually honed back into songwriting after I was like, oh, you know what? I'm actually better at writing songs than I am screaming my head off every night, you know? The Meow Gazine. That's my brother's Meow Gazine. Yes, my brother, Zach Maring, um, he makes coloring books. And he, he's made a really cool Beatles coloring book, David Bowie coloring books, and the Meow Gazine. And he also does music. Like, he covered the Suicide Boys. Yeah, he's a, he's like the most prolific musician in our family. He makes an album, like, every week. It's it's overwhelming, actually. It's like, he's a real outsider artist. Now, you are wise. Blood. But I was confused. There is also this wise blood. There is this wise blood. And this wise blood is why my name is spelled 
differently than this wise blend. I I love that. And I also had a band called Dirt Dish, just to be ironic at that time. But Wise Blood, you know, this is a Swans side project, and it's all one word. But I think it was Greg from that band Espers came up to me when I was a teenager, and he's like, "You got to be really careful. Those guys from the '80s need money, and they're gonna sue you for being called Wise Blood." And I was I didn't know at the time that maybe that wasn't gonna happen, so I changed the spelling of my name and. The rest is history. Although Clint Ruin is pretty cool, scraping fetus off the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is this is incredible. I haven't seen one of these in a long time. I have another gift for you right here, Wiseblood. A Herman Hess record. Wow, wow. Big fan of his writings as a teen, and I didn't really... Is this him reading it in German? From 1973. Wow, that's incredible. In German, yes. I love German. Yeah, it's what can you see about the Hess? You know, the Herman Hess. The Herman Hess, it's very interesting because those were books that I read when I was 15 and I was like, Steppenwolf, you know, Siddhartha, these books were really big and powerful for me. I haven't revisited them as a fully formed adult. So I don't know if I would go back and have the same reaction. I, in my mid 20s, had this realization that I had been inundating myself with nothing but male authors and my whole perspective had been skewed towards, you know, men. And so I think I would go back and read it and I would have a little different feeling about it, you know. Um, definitely could never get into Hemingway for that reason. I could just smell his man bullshit from a mile away. But Hess was, was poetic. And speaking of men, right behind him, another gift for you. <gasps> Hoagie Carmichael. Does he get a pass? Oh, lots of men get a pass with me. Don't get me wrong. But I was just saying for authors, but... With male musicians, I feel like that is less of an influence. I don't feel oppressed when I listen to Bob Dylan and guys like that. Weisblood, K-L-F-C. K-L-C? Radio. Radio. You did a show. I did. And you played, I noticed, this artist right here. Inka Or, Inka Or, Inka Or. This is a deep cut, big influence on me. She is a, a noise goddess, vocal drone um, weirdo kind of originated in the Bay Area I think she's originally from the Midwest but she lived in Portland and lived in San Fran eventually became a really great holistic um, practitioner but her record I got when I was maybe 16 and it was the most feminine of all that noise music that I had ever heard and uh, yeah I used to play it obsessively I tried to play it for a bunch of kids at my college and they were just like whoa dude on KLC yep there's also K-Boo in Portland Yes, I played on K-Boo, I think, but I accidentally took too much cough medicine, and it was a really rough show, and the people there were kind of like, whoops, like, maybe shouldn't have had her play. How did you know you took too much medicine? Because when you take too much cough medicine, you start tripping, and then, like, you know, your perspective gets all disassociated, so it's kind of like when you see those R. Crumb drawings where they're like, you know, that's like what cough syrup, too much cough syrup feels like. So it was a good gig then for you. It was it was a disaster. I mean, like, I don't trip when I play. I, I try to keep it really sharp to deliver the message to the people. So at that time, it was actually really traumatic and weird, and I couldn't really, couldn't climb out of that hole, you know? And Canada is very important to wise blood. For instance, Shadowy Men. Oh, my God. My favorite. I love Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. I love the kids in the hall. This is super deep cut for me. I didn't, oh, man, I love this record. I had it on CD. I bought it off eBay as a kid, you know? Instrumental. A lot is instrumental. Yeah, theme for from TV. That's my favorite. Having an average weekend. That's the theme. 
kids in the hall. Do, 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 do. Wow, this is going to get a lot of play. Seth Abramson. Do you know him on Twitter? Yeah, yeah. Who is he? And he always shouts you out. Yeah, he's a he's a political writer who who has written some very scathing, incredible things um, with Trump, and I think he he just has a really vocal political voice. Um, and the fact he's taken a liking to my music is it's extremely flat. Good night, y'all. Yeah, yeah. But I I, um, I couldn't quote him literally, but I'm I'm very flattered. How did you find him? I just saw that somebody was tweeting about me a bunch. I was like, who is this guy? And somebody had to explain to me who he was, and I looked into it a little bit more, and hopefully we'll meet someday. But Shout out to Seth. Shout out to Seth. Keep on doing that real work. It's hard work. And the threads. Yeah, the great threads. <laughs> and winding up here, wise blood. I have another gift for you to end this interview right here. An original 1968 Velvet Underground poster from Vancouver. Wow. I'm so shocked. That's that's incredible. Oh, that's when he played so the beautiful. Retinal Circus in 1968 in Vancouver. Wow. I bet it was a really weird show. I'm sure it was very strange. Well, actually, you're kind of psychic in saying that. John Cale fell off the stage and broke his wrist. <gasps> No doubt. They're strung out, trying to jam and drone out for hours. That's amazing, though. That's so you can mail back your experiences in Vancouver because it's a postcard as well. Wow. I wonder if people would write back like, what an incredibly bad band. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's amazing. You love the Velvet Underground, don't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Lou Reed fan, huge John Cale fan, love Lamont Young. Everything that touched that band, Andy Warhol, it's very influential on me. Why split? Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? I just wanted to say thank you for listening to my music and, and thank you so much for finding out so many obscure facts about me. I, I feel really known and I feel really loved by these gifts. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Wiseblood. Why should people care about Wiseblood? Why should people care? I think, I mean, it depends. I don't I don't want to say anybody should or shouldn't care. It's kind of open um in terms of their liking but I think I try to be honest and I try to sing from the heart and I'm really not trying to throw anybody for a loop and I hope that um, people appreciate that because in these times I think there's a lot of emotional manipulation that goes on. Well thanks so much Wiseblood. Keep on rocking in the free world and do do loot do. Do do. Drank a lot of coffee today Got lost in the fray I gave all I had For a time Then by some strange design I got a case of the empties The ruler of my world A lost, forgotten pearl When fire leaves a
You're listening still, I hope, to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Something to Believe by Wiseblood. And before that, an interview with Wiseblood. And before that, if you're wondering, 7 and 7 is the original version, or the version that you know, by Love. And before that, 7 and 7 is Take 79 and 80 by Love of the tune that you love. And before that, I'm not sure if I mentioned A Fave by Wiseblood, Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet with Early One Morning, which is the friendly giant theme. Shadowy Men were afraid to say the friendly giant theme, so they called it Early One Morning. And before that, Spring from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, the 60s band Spring. And we began the show with Fortune and Maltese and the fabulous pallbearers. Right now on the Nardbar to Human Serviette radio show, I thought I would play something by Lester Lannan and his orchestra, Twistin' in High Society. And we're going to hear right now Guitar Boogie Twist. 
on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. I'm 
1966 literally started with a bang in Ottawa when a would-be assassin attempted to blow up the House of Commons and kill a number of its members. Fortunately for Prime Minister Lester Pearson and opposition leader John Diefenbaker, when the would-be assassin attempted to set the fuse, the bomb exploded prematurely in a House of Commons washroom, killing him before he could toss it into the crowded house. The Speaker of the House and the Solicitor General describe what happened. At approximately 2.55 this afternoon, an explosion took place in the washroom on the third floor of the House of Commons building outside the entrance to the ladies' gallery. At the request of the Sergeant-at-Arms, the RCMP and the local city police of Ottawa have been called in to carry out an investigation which is still continuing at the moment. There has been no positive identification to this point. The, one of the difficulties uh, from the report I have received is that there is more than one identification on the person uh, whose body was found on the scene, which has complicated matters somewhat. A short while ago, Mr. Pennell uh, received a confirmation, and I received confirmation also that uh, the uh, person involved in the, the incident this afternoon was one Paul Joseph Chartier and uh, police also have given information that uh, there were sticks of dynamite and three homemade bombs found in this uh, person's residence in Toronto and there's also evidence that he had been a patient in the psychiatric ward the Toronto Hospital. Perhaps the Solicitor General might add additional details that are in his own possession. Well, I might add that the, uh, so far as the RCMP are concerned, the information we have at hand would strongly indicate that there was no other person involved. Of course, the investigation has not been completed, but that's the evidence to date that they're showing. Um, other evidence would tend to indicate the man was emotionally disturbed. This uh, opinion is found on some written material that was found. The, the notes, uh, the evidence they found, uh, 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 I'm advised, indicate that he was emotionally disturbed and that he felt that there were injustices in the world that ought to be corrected and uh, they were not directed towards any one person having caused these injustices. Bombs were falling in another place in the world, Vietnam, 
and anti-United States demonstrations took place in the spring of 1966 on Parliament Hill as the U.S. buildup in Vietnam continued and President Lyndon Johnson announced additional U.S. support to protect South Vietnam's independence. Speaking in Parliament, Prime Minister Pearson rejected the current fashionable and easy anti-U.S. approach and instead delivered a statesmanlike objective evaluation of U.S. aims. We have always agreed with all the expressions of American policy and power, but they must all acknowledge that that policy has no design against the freedom or welfare of any other people. And that power wherever it is exercised, in Vietnam or any other place, has no aggressive or imperialist purpose behind it. The Prime Minister's position was not shared by Canadian Socialist leader of the NDP party, Tommy Douglas, who attacked External Affairs Minister Paul Martin on Canada's position with regard to Vietnam. I disagree, first of all, on his basic assumption that wherever there are liberation fronts anywhere in the world seeking to throw off the oppression of a military dictatorship that Canada's support uh, must necessarily go to the military dictatorship. This is, in essence, what Mr. Martin is arguing that if there's a liberation front anywhere, and particularly in Asia, that uh, he has dubbed as communist, their, our support uh, must be for the military dictatorship which they're trying to overthrow. Old statesman Paul Martin then asked the NDP leader a hard question. It would be stretching uh, the situation greatly to suggest that Canada, with its tradition of pacification, uh, is always taking the side of military powers. I would like in turn to ask Mr. Douglas, and I do this respectfully because uh, I know him and I have a lot of respect for him as a man and for his views and his interest in peace. I find it very difficult to understand why he will not join with me and with others in urging Hanoi and Peking to engage in negotiations. The House of Commons attention swings from one extreme to another and from Vietnam, it became involved in a minor scandal involving a German call girl and a former Diefenbaker cabinet minister and the possibility of a minor security risk. The story was uncovered when, for security reasons, the prime minister decided to ask the RCMP for any security files for the past 10 years on any member of parliament. Progressive conservative Fairweather righteously asked for a motion to censure the prime minister as he felt this action on the Prime Minister's part was an act of political vengeance. Uh, I moved a motion deploring the action of the government in seeking from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, a very general information of a scandalous nature about the conduct of members of Parliament. What I deplore is that no charges had been made. It was just a sort of a fishnet type of request. And as you know, a fishnet can gather in many things in its orbit when it's cast out. The Prime Minister of Canada um, had the Commissioner of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in, Police in his office and he asked him uh, whether there was any, whether he had in his possession any files of, uh, depicting uh, matters of scandal or breaches of morality involving members of Parliament generally. Now, we have to be very careful that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is not used as a political or government police force. 
This is a matter of very great importance to, to the country. Suffering from a severe cold, the Prime Minister explained the reasons for his actions. Well, I tried to say very clearly in the House the facts of this situation were that I asked the Commissioner of the Police, in the presence of the Secretary of the Cabinet, to give me the results of inquiries which might have been made over 10 years and which bore on the possibility of criminal elements, subversive elements, bringing pressure to bear on members of Parliament in a way that would interfere with the processes of law. I did this at this time because it was a period of rebar. There was so much suspicion and innuendo and so much distressing development going on that I wanted to find out whether this situation went deep and whether it went far. Very fortunately and very reassuringly, the police brought me back only one report, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of the Munsinger case. When I got that report, I realized it was a security matter. I considered it as such and nothing else. I gave it to the chairman of the security panel of the government. He locked it in a safe and it remained there until it was asked for by the police. It was only a copy, of, by the way, of a memorandum that they already had, not a file. And that was all I did with it. And any possible reference to this matter in the House of Commons which occurred was no plot, no plan. It was spontaneous by the minister concerned, goaded beyond endurance, and I knew nothing whatever about it. I think that deals with the major points. The motion specifically says, sir, that this was done as political vengeance. That is quite untrue. The Prime Minister's explanation was accepted, and the motion subsequently defeated. The House then moved on to another emotional but far more important debate, namely unification of Canada's armed forces. In typical Canadian fashion, demands were made for decisive leadership, but the minute Defence Minister Paul Hellyer demonstrated these characteristics in his unification battle, cries of arrogance immediately arose. Progressive Conservative Gordon Churchill spoke this way about Mr. Hellyer and his unification plan. We're not getting the effective fighting machine that we require. A little more humility on the part of Mr. Hellyer would be more in keeping with the responsibilities that he has. But the defense minister was not reluctant to hit back at his critics. Well, this is a lot of nonsense, of course. Actually, uh, we've accomplished a great deal. The opposition uh, that has been put forward has been something of a, of a buckshot or popgun effort, but it's been irrelevant and uh, inaccurate very much of it. And I'm quite prepared to go before the Standing Committee on Defense and to bring expert witnesses and to go into all of the areas that have been raised and to present the facts. We can stand on the facts because they're good. Even a minor revolt of some of the admirals wishing to maintain the status quo did not phase Paul Hellyer because he knew history was on his side. I think um, I have the great overwhelming majority support of all of the men and women of the armed forces. Uh, this is not to say that there is still unanimity. I think uh, there are obviously individuals who would still think that unification was not the right course. But they are in a very small minority, and the great majority believe that it's uh, the organization of the future, that it's a reform which uh, is not only militarily sound, which will save uh, a lot of money, but which is the military organization of the next half century. Paul Hellyer was destined to carry his fight for unification into 1967, and some are predicting his bill would never pass, but if it did, it would mark him as a man of strong character with real leadership ability, one in tune with the 20th century. 
1966 also saw the annual provincial conference where, inevitably, the provinces attempt to get more money from the federal government. In 1966, Quebec was represented by an exceptionally outstanding and astute prime minister. He was Daniel Johnson, who, following the first day of the conference, spoke with typical frankness. I frankly have the uh, impression, by following the proceedings today, that the BNA Act has been replaced by one man, Minister, the Federal Minister of Finance, Mr. Sharp. The other provincial premiers also felt that no was the only word Federal Minister Sharp knew. I think it was re reported to uh, the Prime Minister by uh, one of the uh, uh, Prime Minister of Canada, by one of the other Prime Ministers, that Mr. Sharp only knew one word. Yeah. <laughs> it's not true, but I, uh, but uh, this is certainly uh, the, I'm sure, the common view of all the provinces. It is uh, to be expected, it is inevitable, and I am not ashamed of it. The Liberal government's decision to delay Medicare created rumors of a feud between Finance Minister Sharp and Health and Welfare Minister Alan McKechn when, for budget reasons, it was decided to delay Medicare for 18 months. Explaining his position, the Finance Minister said, If I were the Minister of National Health and Welfare, I would be concerned too. I'm the Minister of Finance with a general responsibility for the economic uh, stability of the country. And uh, all ministers from time to time have to accept some delays or deferments in programs in order that we don't try to do too much all at once. And I certainly sympathize with the Minister of National Health and Welfare today, today and I hope I am in the House of Commons when the Medicare bill goes through and I hope I'm still around when it's in effect in 19, July the 1st, 1968. Mr. McKechn demonstrated, however, that he put party ahead of personal desires when, dispelling rumors of his reported feud with Mr. Sharp, he said... Well, the resolution that uh, was uh, adopted by the, uh, by the conference was quite acceptable to me because uh, it did uh, stipulate that the program uh, come into effect not later than July 1st, 1968, but it did provide for sufficient flexibility in the intervening period that I thought was uh, quite acceptable. You don't feel that the party is letting down the country on commitments made during the election campaigns of 1963 and 65, promising Medicare for 67? Well, I, uh, the conference uh, expressed its regret that uh, this was necessary, but uh, the principle of Medicare is not in doubt. I think it is even more deeply <laughs> certain now than ever uh, the uh, substance of the bill is quite intact, and I think these are important considerations. Canadian history makers cut off abruptly from 1966. We heard some Canadian history from 1966, and before that, some real history from 1966, we heard the Centaurs from Richmond, B.C. with On Your Way on the amazing Vintage Tracks record label. This is an amazing compilation put out by Vintage Tracks Records, which compiles a whole bunch of unreleased and rare Centaurs recordings. Richmond, B.C., Canada, 1966. Of course, we had to follow up with Canadian history. 
Makers from 1966. And before that, we began with Lester Lennon and his orchestra, Twistin' in High Society. I thought now we'd play a bit more of The Centaurs with Walk That Walk. And this particular track was interesting to me because also covered by David Clean Thomas and the Bossman. Walk That Walk. And then we're also going to play some Chris Butler. Chris Butler sent me his release. Thank you so much, Chris. We're going to hear Got It Together from the Got It Together CD. We're going to hear Songs for Guys. Thank you, Fly PR. Chris Butler, Songs for Guys, Got It Together. But first, we're going to hear some centaurs with Walk That Walk. And then we're going to hear Chris Butler And then we're going to hear a whole bunch of live centaurs from, and this is actually from, again, the Vintage Tracks record label. And we're going to hear a whole bunch of live tracks recorded in Bussum, Holland in 1967. Recorded live at the T-Smurf Club in Bussum, Holland. The centaurs from Richmond, B.C., 1966, as reissued by the Vintage Tracks record label. Right now, here are the centaurs from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada's good suburb, Richmond, B.C., 1966, with Walk That Walk, then some Chris Butler, then some more centaurs live from 1967 on the Nardwar the human serviette radio show. Yeah. 
Fred wanted a dumb, good-looking girl to kick around bass playing a plus, a plus. But she auditioned in a t-shirt that said, ignore me at your peril. So soon she was driving the bus. Somehow I got on her mailing list. So I go out and see her play whenever I can, I can. She fills the club with estrogen. And the women are not, but I don't get it. But I keep going back, cause I want to understand.
Thank you. 
Thank you very much.